Good morning, Blackman Baptist Church. Good I'm trying to assemble all my materials here. All right, last week we kicked off our new series, and as part of that, we have these books as well. And these young men back here are ready and willing to bring you a book if you need one. So raise your hand if you need one, and they'll bring it to you. Thank you, guys. Um, all right. So we kicked off our new series last week in Isaiah. Brother Kevin described this. And how, how do you like this background, by the way? Pretty cool. I'm, a, I'm feeling a, a little intimidated. It's really cool. Um, so, but he, he made the analogy of coming into this, this book of Isaiah as we approached it. I'm not going to lie, it's a little intimidating. It's, it is a heavy, heavy book. It's a big book. It's deep. It's rich. Um, there's a lot of opportunity for, for misunderstanding and um, for, for messing up. We don't want to do those things. We want to we divide, divide the word rightly. And we want to be faithful to God's truth. So as we looked into this, uh, there was a little bit of a, a fear factor going on. Um, but we're going to tackle it anyway. This is God's word and we need to hear it. So we're going we're gonna to dive into it today. Kevin made the analogy last week, and I, I just love this, of when he, he took a trip to Israel and he got to fly in. So he said, flying in, you're looking at the country from, from altitude. And, and there are features of the country that you can make out. You can see a coastline, you can see deserts, you can see cities, you can see these kinds of geographical features. But there's a whole lot of detail down on the ground that you just cannot capture from an airplane. And so... What happens when you travel is you get, to, you get to land at some point, and that's when you get to understand the other, compre- you get to comprehend the other details. What's the culture like? You can't tell that from an airplane. Are the people friendly? Is this, a, is this a place that is orderly or is it chaotic? And Rodney could probably tell us some stories about a chaotic place. Are the streets safe? Or is, it, is this a place I need to worry about being robbed? How's the food? That's an important one I'm always, I'm always interested in. Um, and these things can only be experienced on the ground. So, so today we're jumping into chapter one of Isaiah. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna try to land the plane and see what we can find out. And when you land, one of the first things that you need to do, whether it's Israel or any any other country, or you you need to figure out what time is it, because probably it's a different time zone than the place you left, and your watch may not be right. Now we have phones now, all you gotta do is turn it on and it'll sync up, right? But it's still a new time and you better pay attention. So we're, we're landing here in Isaiah. What time is it? Where are we? What's going on? And this is a place where, um, for many of us, this, is, this can be a confusing part of the history of Israel, right? We, we, we can grasp the story of Abraham pretty well and, and we love the story of Joseph, it's so interesting. But boy, we start getting into the the lesser kings and the prophets, and it, it, it gets a little confusing. So I kind of just want to take a, just a few minutes to lay in context and help us remember exactly where we are in the story of Israel. So everyone remembers, I think, hopefully, Adam and Eve. We'll just start at the beginning. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get through this quickly, I promise. Genesis 1 through 11. What does that tell the story of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, and the Tower of Babel? Now we're at Genesis 12. And who pops up? 
Abraham. And Abraham is the beginning of the story of Israel. So already in Genesis 12, God didn't wait too long before he started telling Israel's story. Here's Abraham, the faithful patriarch. It's 2000 B.C. when Abraham shows up on the scene, roughly. Okay? And what did God promise to him? The land of Canaan was going to be his and his family's forever. Right? That's God's promise. And God doesn't break his promises. So after Abraham comes his descendants. We know them. We've been, we've been walking through these stories in Sunday school. And we study them anyway. But we have Isaac. We have Jacob. And remember that Jacob was renamed by God to become Israel. Exactly. Wrestles with God. Struggles with God. That's Jacob's new name. It also happens to be the name of the country that we're going to be talking about. Then Jacob's son, the most famous one, Joseph, right? The one who was sold into slavery and then rose to be the governor of all of Egypt and then brought his family in to rescue them. 400 years of the family of Jacob, of Israel, living in Egypt. They came in as 70 people. And 400 years later, there's a couple million of them. We know this story. In fact, we're just talking about this in Sunday school. A couple million Israelites suffering under slavery in Israel. Or in Egypt, sorry. And, um, and they come out led by Moses around 1350, 1400 B.C. So this is about 1,400 years or 1,300 years before Jesus was born. We're talking about Moses. And Moses did a lot of things, but I just want to focus on a couple for the context of what we're going to talk about today. He gave the law. He, delivered, he, he was used by God to deliver the people. And, he, and the, the law established the priesthood and the system of worship that God instructed the people. You are to worship me and to love me. And here's a couple books about how to do it in very much detail. He was very specific about how he wanted to be worshipped. And he told them, you're supposed to love me with, with everything you have, but here's how to do it. So he was looking for activity and he was looking for heart. After Moses, who's next? Joshua. And Joshua is where God realizes the promise to Abraham because he leads Joshua, God leads Joshua into the promised land to take the promised land. So now... What, what was promised to Abraham and Abraham didn't get to see with his own eyes is now real. The people of Israel are in the promised land and living in land that they didn't earn. God fought for them. After Joshua comes the time of the judges. And there's, there's a whole long history of judges, but we, we remember a couple of those names very well. I'm sure Gideon and Samson. We, we remember that time when everyone did as he thought he should do. Right? So God had appointed these men as spiritual leaders of the country and as earthly leaders because they had temporal and earthly power and they had spiritual authority both. The last judge was Samuel. Samuel was also a prophet. He was also a priest. He, he was serving in this... Uh, um, he, he was serving in the temple. He was given, or in the tabernacle, given by his mother because of... Her prayer to God, if you give me a son, I will give, you my, I will give him back to you. And remember that Samuel, Samuel came there, but Samuel was the one who made the transition from the time of the judges to the time of the kings because he anointed the first kings, the first two actually, Saul and then David. And we know these stories too, very famous stories. 
David's son Solomon. And now we're around 1000 B.C., about a thousand years before Jesus came. Solomon built the temple. So all of the, all of the worship practices that were defined by Moses in the books of Moses, they're now going to be practiced in this glorious temple that's been built. And that's going to last for hundreds of years, this temple worship. But in 931 B.C., when Solomon died, the kingdom was divided. And, and this, where, this is where things can get very confusing for folks. So, but this is where we are in the story. The kingdom divides into a northern and a southern kingdom because the two kings can't agree on who should be king, and they both want to be king, and this splits the kingdom. So in the south, we have Judah and Benjamin. The two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stay in the south. Typically, we call that the kingdom of Judah. In the north is what we typically call Israel, but it's the other ten tribes. And it's, it's bigger in area. The prophets, now the prophets come, and they tend to be either prophets in Judah or prophets in Israel. And we have a whole list of prophets as we see them through the, uh, through the scriptures. The northern kingdom takes its capital as Samaria. And they immediately, um, immediately veer into idolatry. Just open idolatry. The southern kingdom keeps the capital of Jerusalem. And they, and they struggle. But it takes them a little longer to veer off the path completely as, as Israel did. And then about another little less than a couple hundred years later after the split, Isaiah comes on the scene. And... Um, so we, that's kind of where we are. We're a couple hundred years into this time of the divided kingdom. Um, from our Christian perspective, we're about 750, 760 years before Jesus actually was born. This Messiah, this promised one. But nobody in Israel, of course, can know that because that's in the future for them. They have heard from prophets, though. They've heard from Obadiah and Joel and Jonah and Amos. Those prophets all came before Isaiah. Now, Isaiah lived and ministered as a prophet of Judah. And he, and he ministered for quite a while. His ministry is thought to be about 51 years. Spanned four kings. We're going to read that in a minute. And I'm intentionally starting off with this intro. I'm going to read scripture, I promise. Probably more than typical. Um, but, so around this time, he served with four kings. And he started his ministry. The Assyrians were the great power. So over in the east... And what we now know is Iraq, northern Iraq, was the capital of Assyria, Nineveh. And for those of us who have people in the service, they may be sensitive to Nineveh because the new name of Nineveh is Mosul. And we've had some significant battles there just in the last several years. But Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. They had been threatening, attacking, and conquering regional powers, including Israel and Judah, for quite a while now. There are two famous artifacts that that are really interesting about, that touch on this Assyrian power, both in the British Museum. One of them is in the British Museum. They have the actual lions from the gates of Nineveh. And so what's, what's beautiful about that is as we look at Scripture, and we're looking at, at Scripture that's 2,500 years old, 2,700 years old, and we might think it's kind of a once-upon-a-time thing. But it, it is in the past, but it's not a myth and it's not a, a fable. 
We can go to the British Museum and we, well, you better not lay hands on them. You'll probably get in trouble. But you can get within arm's reach of these lions that were literally physically at the gates of Nineveh. It's remarkable to see. They have another thing there that's called, it's an obelisk. An obelisk is a piece of stone that's carved. It's a, it's a sort of a, well, the shape of a, a tower, sort of, but it's maybe yay high. It has carvings on it depicting different scenes from the reigns of the kings of Assyria. One of the scenes on that shows the first, it's the first uh, physical, viewable carving that we image of a character from the Bible, of a person from the Bible. And it's believed to be the king Jehu of the kingdom of Israel, not Judah, giving tribute to, uh, to this Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria. It's fascinating stuff. Um, I'm gonna, I'll tone down the nerd for a little bit so we can catch back up. But bottom line, God is a God who works in reality. These are not fables. These are true stories. And we have artifacts that we can go identify. And, and it's, it's fascinating and comforting to see that. So there are other powers in the region. Egypt, Syria, Edom, and others. Babylon will soon rise to greatness as well. Eventually conquer Assyria. Later, the Persians will come and defeat Babylon in turn. And Isaiah has things to say about all these powers as we get into this. Not in chapter 1, but it's coming. And some of those were in the future from his perspective. And he still talks about it with accuracy. The kings and the people of Judah and Israel had been settled into their worship now in the temple that Solomon built for a few hundred years. At this time, Isaiah comes on the scene. That's where we are. They're settled in. They've got this temple. They've got the temple worship. They know what to do. And they've been struggling politically and militarily with these, all these powers around them. Because as Kevin was saying, this is sort of a, a geographical crossroads of all the powers of the world kind of focus here. If you want to come down from, from uh, the European side and, and penetrate into Africa, you've got to go through this space. And if you want to come from Asia into Europe or Africa, you're coming through this area. It's a focal point. So they've got all these enemies and, and struggles. And one thing they've got in spades, when God told them to take the promised land, take Canaan, and get rid of all the Canaanites, unless you fall into their idolatrous practices, guess what they didn't do? They didn't do it. And so they're still Canaanites. They're still idolatrous practices. And the Israelites have found living amongst them, some of these are interesting and kind of appealing, and maybe we'll adopt some of these things. So they're doing temple worship, but that's not all they're doing. This is the scene now. We try to set our clocks, paint, our, paint the picture of kind of what's going on when, when Isaiah comes into, into view. Now Isaiah, as a person, he was married. Actually, his wife was a prophetess, which is quite interesting. He had two kids. I'm not going to say their names in Hebrew, but their names mean something. And one... One of their names is a remnant shall return. Now, if that isn't loaded, a loaded name, a remnant shall return. The other one was hasty, hasty to the spoil. He was a highly educated man. Yeah. If you had the trouble I had with, with trying to call down my kids and get the right name, it would take a while with names <laughs> like that. right? Um, he was a highly educated man. And his book... The book of Isaiah, as Kevin was talking about last week, it is a, it's a treasure trove. There's so many songs that are taken, the lyrics are taken from it because it's poetic. And it's moving, it's powerful, and it's profound. He was socially elevated too. 
Some prophets were sort of outcasts, but not Isaiah. Isaiah, was a, he associated with the kings and the rulers. And he, he was familiar with them and they were familiar to him. Um, and this isn't recorded in scripture, but we believe in the end that Isaiah was killed under the reign of Manasseh, the evil king, uh, actually by being sawn in half, which is a pretty horrible way to go. Um, that he was in a tree. He was either hiding in a tree and was found and they sawed the tree in half or they stuffed him in a tree and sawed it in half just to be cruel. Either way. Um, and we believe, um, we can't prove this, but, but many people believe that in Hebrews 11 there's a reference to the suffering of the saints over, over the history. And there's a reference to people being sawn in half. And we believe that he's referring to Isaiah without using his name. With all that background in mind, the setting of Israel, the worship, Isaiah and Isaiah the man. I want to go ahead and read Isaiah 1 and then talk for a few minutes about what he has to say to us in this opening chapter. I'm going to read out of my handy dandy guide here. All right. Hear the word of the Lord. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. Let me pause just for a moment. This is, this is a hard word that he's going to speak, and I want you to listen to God's mood and what he's saying to these people. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on Him. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt. The whole heart is sick. From the sole of the foot even to the head, no spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts, and festering sores, not cleansed, bandaged, or soothed with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities burned down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard. Like a shack in a cucumber field. Like a besieged city. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me, asked the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies, I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread your hands out in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. 
Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The faithful town, what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice. Righteousness once dwelt in her. But now, murderers. Your silver has become dross to be discarded. Your beer is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, friends of thieves. They all love graft and chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless, and the widow's case never comes before them. Therefore, the Lord God of armies, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will get even with my foes. I will take revenge against my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely. I will remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges to what they were at first and your advisors to what they were at the start. Afterward, you will be called the righteous city, a faithful town. Zion will be redeemed by justice, those who repent by righteousness. At the same time, both rebels and sinners will be broken, and those who abandon the Lord will perish. Indeed, they will be ashamed of the sacred trees you desired, and you will be embarrassed because of the garden shrines you have chosen. For you will become like an oak whose leaves are withered, and like a garden without water. The strong one will become tender, and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to extinguish the flames. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a hard word, isn't it? All right, at the beginning, we see God calling this, calling this, uh, this, this hearing to order. It's, it's almost as if there's a courtroom, and what's he saying? Here I am, the judge and the prosecutor, and I'm calling. He says, Hero, listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. So the witnesses, the creation itself, the heavens and the earth, the creation that he has made, are going to be the witnesses to his accusations, to his indictment. And he says... I've raised children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. So he's calling himself father, and he's calling Israel children. What what does it imply that he says he's a father? What do fathers do? They love, they protect, they provide, they teach, they discipline. And then there's the concept of an inheritance, too, from a father and a child relationship. Has God not given... All these things to Israel in abundance? Love, protection, provision, inheritance, teaching and discipline, yes. He's not just a father. He is the perfect father. Those of us who are fathers, we try to emulate those things. And we succeed to some extent. And we fail in many ways. But he does not fail. He was the perfect father to Israel. And what have they done? They rebelled. They rebelled. His love called them out to be His chosen people. His protection sustained them in Egypt and allowed them to multiply. His provision sustained them on their journey to the promised land. His teaching and discipline came through the law. His inheritance was the promised land itself. Promised to Abraham and then delivered through Joshua. And what other inheritance did He promise them? An eternal king is coming. So we live in a world of human imperfection. Lots of bad fathers. But not God. And they rebelled against this perfect father with the result that he was angry. And I would say he was rightfully angry. He's very angry. He, but he is perfectly just. And he has a reason for his anger. And it's a just reason. So let's, let's roll into what, what are the charges 
Because the truth is, we know we're sinners, right? We all know we're sinners. None of us is perfect. We do things wrong. And we even confess. Each Sunday we confess. But sin is a funny thing because it's very specific. Because when we sin, we do specific things. And God's got a laundry list for the Israelites. Let's just look at what the specific sins are. Rebellion. Rebellion is a sin. Ingratitude. Listen to this. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Somehow Israel has completely lost track of all that they've been given. They're not even grateful anymore. Ingratitude is a huge sin against God. What have they done? They've abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel and they've turned their backs on Him. What is, it, what is the turning of the back other than a, a, a mark of disrespect? So they've turned their back on the one that they should reach out to. And they've abandoned and despised him. He blasts them for their insincere worship. For their worship that's in the midst of unrepentance. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. He accuses them of murder. Actual murder. He calls them murderers. He accuses them of being an unfaithful town. An adulterous town. And this is spiritual adultery he's talking about, but that always leads to, to the other kind too. What is spiritual adultery in this context? What does he mean? He's talking about idolatry. He's saying that I am, your, I am the one that you should be worshiping. If you're worshiping someone else, that is spiritual idolatry. I'm the one who has brought you out and provided for you. He calls them out for corruption and bribery. Their leadership is corrupt and they're always looking for a bribe. And then finally, he gets them really hard for, their, for two things. They fail to protect the fatherless and they fail to give justice to the widow. Now, the fatherless and the widow, those are very specific circumstances and those are, those are important and they're real. But you could group these, these people into a, a category of people who have less power, and less ability to manage for themselves. And God's expectation is that those who have should help those who have not. And they're failing to do that. It's a, it's a complete failure. I want to focus on just a couple of these really quickly. Uh, we'll have plenty of time in the coming chapters to focus on others probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not really a lighthearted message for the most part. But... Worship without repentance is a big deal to God. And God spends a lot of time on this here. He has directed Israel, like I said, He's directed them through books. We've got the book of Leviticus that describes how does worship supposed to look. And He, and he, he established the priesthood. And He told the Levites, this is how you do things. And He established holidays, specific days of the year where they observe different things. So He, he meant it. But listen to these words that he uses when he describes their worship. I've had enough of your burnt offerings. I have no desire for the blood of bulls. Remember, he told them to sacrifice the bulls. He told them what to do with the blood. And the blood had to be sprinkled before, in, you know, in the, in the Holy of Holies, before God's presence could be entered. Stop bringing useless offerings. Useless. He commanded them to bring offerings now. He's calling them useless. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. What does he say? I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. 
It doesn't get much stronger than that. They become a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. The, the strength of the language here is just, it just sets you back to think about the, the animus and the anger that God has about this. When you worship, but you're harboring sin on the side, that is not okay. God is saying all of the good things that you do, those, those do not add up to fix the bad things that you've done. So you, you sacrifice according to procedure, fantastic. I hate it. Oh, you observe, you take days off from work and you observe the holidays that I set aside. Oh, let's see. Those are a burden to me and I'm tired of putting up with them. So the unrepented sin of the people of Israel has meant all of the good things that they're trying to do to meet his demands have no value at all to him. In fact, he hates them. So he, he concludes by saying, you know what? I will not hear your prayers. He says, I will not hear your prayers because of your guilt, because you have blood on your hands. So they're very busy keeping themselves busy with the activity of worship, but you can't fool God with activity. He knows. He knows where your heart's at. He knows what other sin you have. You can't fool God with activity. Your good behavior doesn't outweigh your bad, no matter how much it seems like it should. I wanted to tell a quick story. It's a personal story, and I'm the bad guy in this one, so I think it's fair to share um, but when I, was, when I was much younger and dating Connie, I had two, two situations, and I want to contrast them. In both situations, I gave her a card. And that's a, a card is kind of a ritual thing that we do, right, to, to show honor and, and care for another person. Well, one time, the card came with a gift. I had gone out. And I knew, I knew what her favorite color was. And I went to this little antique shop and I picked out this really cute little thing that I thought she might like. It was her color. And I brought it back to her and I, and I gave it to her and I was expecting, she's going to like this. And you know what? She loved it. She loved it. Major points for the boyfriend. I was so excited. She was excited. She liked it because she knew I was focused on her and I was thinking about that. Come Valentine's Day, I learned something from this. I went out and I bought, I bought ingredients to make a meal. I bought a card. I, you know, I cleaned up everything in my apartment and I invited over and said, I'm gonna cook for you, you know, and we'll have Valentine's Day, it'll be so nice. Um, but you know what? I haven't told you the whole story, but she wasn't happy. She wasn't happy at all. In fact, she was really, really angry and didn't even wanna talk to me. Why? Because while I was cooking and she was there looking for my attention, I was on the phone with my roommate from college, just chatting away. Hey, bud, what's going on? Did you get your homework done? Carrying on. And she's over in the living room saying, what day is this? Maybe I'm confused. I don't know what's happening here. What is wrong with this person? So I, I got her the card. I went out and bought the stuff. I even cooked the meal. But you know what? I blew it. I completely blew it. And that isn't nearly, nearly the level of crime that what Israel's done here, right? Me, you know, young guy, screwed up, made a mistake. I didn't, I didn't understand how these things work. Israel, they know. They've been unfaithful, right? They know what they've done. And they cannot expect to come to God with these rituals and cards, and he's going to like them when they're worshiping someone else on the side. 
when they're going up to these sacred groves and worshiping the, the ash the shear poles. He's, he's, not, he's not stupid. He knows what's going on. So the point here, doing something good, especially with God, does not help unless you stop doing the wrong. God's not impressed with your work and service if you refuse to repent and humble yourself before Him. He's looking for our hearts. So this next little section is that God's going to warn. He's, he's, brought, he's brought these list of charges, but He hasn't said yet what He's going to do about it. But now he's going to say what he's going to do about it. He's going to bring, he's going to bring judgment. I'm just going to call out a couple of verses. He says, Therefore the Lord God of armies, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will get even with my foes. I will take revenge against my enemies. And we say, Well, we shouldn't be about revenge, right? Why do we say that? Because the Bible tells us, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So we as humans recognize we shouldn't be about revenge. But we forget, Oh, Revenge is okay if it's coming from God. It's actually just. Right? And God is saying, I'm going to get revenge and I'm righteous to do so. Because you guys are in the wrong and I'm in the right. At the same time, he says, both rebels and sinners will be broken and those who abandon the Lord will perish. Indeed, they will be ashamed of the sacred trees you desired and you will be embarrassed because of the garden shrines you have chosen. He's saying he's going to break the rebels and the sinners, and he's going to humiliate the people who seek after these idolatrous places. He's talking about the sacred trees and the shrines. Uh, part, of the, part of the worship of some of these false gods included groves of trees that were considered to be sacred. Um, they were uh, often associated with fertility or, or the giving of life in general. So people would go up into these groves and... Um, did various worship practices. Some of them were absolutely horrific. But God's saying, you're going to be embarrassed that you went up to these trees. You're going to be humiliated by your desire for these gardens because I'm going to expose what this is. So our principle here is that God will judge. But the second part of that is Jesus is God. And remember that our purpose for this is that we're looking for Christ in Isaiah. And so far, I haven't really mentioned too much about Jesus. Um, but now it's time to. So we, we always like to think of Jesus as the Redeemer. Rightfully so, because He is. And we need a Redeemer really bad. But the Bible also tells us that He's God. God's a judge. And He's a righteous judge. We're talking about judgment right now. And whether our society approves of His judgment or not, his standard will rule. His justice will reign. And that sounds good unless you realize you're on the wrong side of the justice. Because we're the sinners that need to get judged. So we see this. Don't kid yourself into thinking that you can get away with your sin without consequences. And God's telling Israel through Isaiah, you've been doing this for a while now. God doesn't seem to have noticed you, you've been doing this for a couple hundred years, but it's not forever, and now it's time. We have the same problem that we, we can sin for a while, and it seems like we're getting away with it. And so we feel like, gosh, if there's no consequence, why should I stop? And uh, why should I confront this issue in me if, I, if there's no consequence to it? Well, there is a consequence. It just isn't always immediate. Okay? 
And I said that Jesus is a, a, a judge. In Matthew 25, this is interesting. It kind of emphasizes an earlier point. He talks about the sheep and the goats. And this is a picture of Jesus, the Son of Man, in judgment. And He's dividing the sheep from the goats. And what is the criteria that He uses? Was it whether you practiced the correct worship practices properly? Did the sacrifices on time? Or, or, or did the right bull for the right sin? Nope. Was it, was it your, even your personal purity? No, that's not what He's talking about. He says, it's, it's about what did you do for the least of these, right? What did you do in service to help other people, the vulnerable and the poor? It's fascinating. And I'm not saying that God doesn't care about those other things. He certainly does. But in that story, depicting Jesus as judge, the one criteria that it's focused on is the least of these. Now, this is one of the great sins that Isaiah calls out right in our chapter here. And he says, they do not defend the rights of the fatherless and the widow's case never comes before them. God will judge and Jesus is God. Okay, a lot of heavy stuff here. But there's still good news to be found here. And we're a Baptist church. We want to make sure we've got gospel in our sermons. But you know what? It's right that we should because God puts the gospel all through the scripture. And he even put gospel right here in chapter 1 of Isaiah in the midst of all this condemnation and judgment. We still have, some, we still have a hope here. And what does he say? Come, let us settle this. Or as another translation might say, come, let us reason together. Because God's saying, we can work this out. You, you just need to understand where you are. Come, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your, skin, though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then he says, he says, I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely. I will remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges to what they were at first and your advisors to what they were at the start. Afterward, you will be called the righteous city, a faithful town. Zion will be redeemed by justice and those who repent by righteousness. So we see in this passage, now God's saying, your sins, they're ugly. They're crimson. Why, why is he using this, this crimson imagery as scarlet or as crimson? That's the color of blood, right? That's how guilty they are. Murder, blood. But that's really bad stuff. And he's saying, that's how guilty you are. But you know what? We'll be white as snow. And we'll be like wool. So there's two things going on here. One, he's promising that he will clean and purify them. And the other, he's asking for a response. He's saying if you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good things. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured. So this is what we understand. Um, he does promise this. This purification. We, we actually get washed in a way, by Jesus' blood that can, that can purify our sins. And, and this doesn't specifically talk about Jesus and the Messiah coming yet here in, in chapter 1. We'll get to that before too long, but not, not today. But we know the rest of the story is that our sins are paid for by Jesus. Not actually by our... Our sins are not paid for and redeemed by our own actions. But our response is important and necessary. We have to repent. We have to come to Him humbly and seek His salvation. 
But you know what? When we do, he will. And it says, I love this. I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely and remove your impurities. In this turning of the hand against, it's not a hand of judgment. It's a hand of cleaning up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix you. I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to sanctify you. Not saying it won't hurt. It might hurt. Right? But the intent is purification, not destruction. That's what he has in store for Jerusalem. That's what he has in store for us. He wants to, he wants to clean us up. And God's hope, offering that hope even now. Even in the terrible state that we're in. You might be in. There's hope. He's not denying sin. It's scarlet. It's crimson. So we've got to repent. That is our response. And He promises to sanctify. The point here is that God is seeking reconciliation. And He will purify. Later on we're going to see He promises to do these things. And the, the line says, by my zeal I will do this. By God's zeal He will do these things. The musicians want to come up. I'll just have a couple points in conclusion. When we look for Jesus in Isaiah, we're tempted to focus on redemption. This is natural. It's not even wrong. Uh, in fact, it's very right. But remember that God will judge, and Jesus is God. Remember also that someone had to pay the price for our sin. We know that was Jesus too. And we... Like Israel, we're guilty of rebelling and ignoring God. We're guilty of being less than generous with those that are less fortunate. And we may be even sometimes guilty of bringing unrepentant hearts to worship. We know how God feels about that. So the question for us is, will you repent when it's time to confess? Will you name the specific things that you've done wrong? Name them to God. Tell them, I did this. God, you know. Confess your sins and pray for, pray for His purification of you so that you don't have to face destructive judgment.